This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. He's joining us via Skype. How are you doing this morning, Professor Gershon? Great, Liz. Uh, it's great to, to be with you by Skype. And uh, today I'm going to be uh, getting a pie in the face as part of our uh, Halloween carnival here for uh, the children of, uh, of uh, students and faculty and staff at the law school and probably some students themselves. So uh, that could be interesting. Oh, my goodness. So I, I want to know, uh, is there money involved in this? Do the kids have to pay to uh, pie someone or can you pay to not get pied? You know, I really don't know. I mean, a student <laughs> came up to me after class last week and said, uh, would you be willing to, to be in our pie booth? And I said, sure, why not? And so I really don't know, uh, <laughs> but it should be interesting. You know, uh, I guess I should, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you probably ought to ask questions before uh, you agree to do stuff. But it could be fun. And, you know, I'm always happy to, to help our students out here. We have a great community uh, here at, at the university. So, uh, you know, happy to do that. And it sounds like fun. And a little fun on occasion is not a bad thing. Well, and it seems like sometimes we need fun when uh, reality steps in and life is not fun. So I, I hope uh, you exactly. and the, the students all have uh, a, a, lovely fa- a lovely fall day. Well, I think we will, and thank you for that. And uh, and today it's, it's great to, to talk about something people probably want to know, uh, you know, why we don't give legal advice on this show, uh, you know, direct legal advice to people's questions. When, uh, you know, on the doctor shows, they, they can talk to someone and say, well, I think you need to take, you know, two Advil or whatever, or, uh, you know, here's put some, put some, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is on, on your, you know, Vicks VapoRub on your, on your fungus, toe fungus. They can give more specific advice. Same with uh, Fix It 101 and some of the other shows. But we always say, we can't give legal advice, and there's a reason for that. Well, and that's our topic of our show, is when does the attorney-client relationship start? And before we talk about uh, when it starts, uh, let's talk about why. Why is that an important uh, distinction for a, a relationship starting? Well, Liz, once the attorney-client relationship starts... Then the lawyer owes the client lots of lots of duties uh, that the lawyer is required to, uh, to to you know make sure that they happen. For example, uh, a communication between a lawyer and a client is confidential. So you know if I don't know that I've entered into a, an attorney-client relationship with someone, uh, and they ask me uh, for advice or they talk to me about something, you know, and I 
share that with someone else, that information with someone else. I violated my my duty to that person. Now, you know, just just a person I talk to at the grocery store starts talking to me about, you know, uh, something that's happening in their life and there's no attorney client privilege. I, I don't have or attorney client relationship. I don't have any uh, duty to that person not to talk to somebody else about the information they gave me. But as soon as there's an attorney client relationship, I have a duty not to share that information. I have a duty of confidentiality. I have a, I have a duty to avoid conflicts of interest uh, with that person once they're a client. Uh, and so I, you know, I have certain duties of communication and, and duties of competence to them. So there are a lot of things that kick in as soon as there is an attorney-client relationship. Well, let's take this back uh, a step further. Who who says you owe this duty? Where does this owing um, idea come from? Well, that's a, you know it's it's a general uh, concept that the when a lawyer client relationship exists, that that uh, lawyer has a fiduciary duty. Now, when we talk about a fiduciary duty, that's a, that's a higher level of duty. That's a a duty of trust. So, uh, you know, that's how it all started originally. And the Supreme Court of the United States way back in the, the 1800s said that, that that's one of the highest uh, levels of uh, trust, the lawyer-client relationship. And we want our clients to be able to tell us everything, you know, because uh, in order for us to represent them, whether it's in court or, or I'm making a will or, or somebody's making a contract for, for a client, we need all the information. And so they have to trust that if they share that information with us, that we will keep that information confidential. And so, you know, that's that's generally how it started. And then what bar organizations uh, have done is, is put those requirements in the form of, of rules. So every bar or every bar around the country will have uh, rules for lawyer client relationships that that uh, control uh, our, our behavior. Uh, in relation to not only the client, but also people who aren't our clients, too. And uh, the American Bar Association, for example, has model rules of professional conduct that most states in the country have based their rules off of of it. So those rules uh, really do govern our day-to-day responsibility with our clients and, as I said, with the court and with people who aren't our clients and how we behave uh, as lawyers. Uh, we're glad that you're listening to MPB this morning. This is in legal terms. We're talking about uh, the attorney-client relationship. If you'd like to participate in our show, we'd love for you to call one 672 7464. We've got a different phone number today than last week when we were fundraising. That's why we didn't take the calls. We didn't want to get them all mixed up. So the call-in number is one 877 MPB ring. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Professor Richard Gershon is our lawyer. I'm Liz Gill. I'm just sitting here. Java Chapman is here at the board. He's just sitting here. So, Professor Gershon, if I ask Java for some advice about uh, my no good, low down husband and how I want to get a divorce and what I have to do to do that, and he gives me advice uh, to my detriment. Now, he doesn't have a fiduciary uh, duty. Um, we're, and he doesn't owe me anything. But uh, it's the, the, the bar association, or is it just the fact of being a lawyer? Do all lawyers belong to bar associations? 
That's right. I mean, I think to, to really call yourself a lawyer, uh, you, you really need to belong to the Bar Association, which I should say I belong to the Florida Bar and the Georgia Bar, but not the Mississippi Bar. So, you know, technically, I cannot say I'm a lawyer in Mississippi because I'm not uh, I'm not licensed here. I am a lawyer, but uh, not in this jurisdiction. So that, that that matters. But let's say Java gives you advice and you think he is a lawyer. Uh, it, there are cases that have said if you think that you that he is a lawyer and he holds himself out to be a lawyer and he gives you advice and you rely on that advice that he does, in fact, have certain duties to you. Now, they may not be uh, e- exactly equal to the duties that arise from an actual lawyer, but there you know, there is some expectation. So whether a lawyer client relationship exists really starts with the client. And if the client believes that a lawyer-client relationship exists and relieves and does so uh, reasonably, then typically a court, you know, if it comes to that, will side with the client. All right. And uh, just for the record, I do not have a uh, low-down, no-good husband. He's really quite <laughs> fantastic and, in fact, is on his way to take care of his mother in the hospital because he is a good son also. Um, well, so it is about the, uh, the what the client, what the individual seeking the information believes. And if they believe someone is a, a lawyer, then that person giving off the aura, giving off the idea that they're or holding themselves to be a lawyer. Now, is there a difference? I guess this would be from remedies. Is there a difference on if someone actually purported to be a lawyer rather than just a misunderstanding that they were a lawyer? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So if Java told you, if Java had a sign out in front of his, uh, his office right now, uh, you know, Java Chapman, uh, you know, attorney at law, you know, you, you as you could rely on that. I mean, you know, there are ways to verify that you can check to make sure he is a member of the bar and that's easy enough to do online. You can look for bar memberships, uh, you know, bar organizations will have member directories online and you can see if someone's a, a member. You can also see if they're in good standing with the bar because, uh, you know, there are bar organizations now. Uh, show whether somebody has disciplinary history or whether they're not a member of good standing because they've been suspended or disbarred. So, you know, you can you can check that. But if you just saw his sign and, and said, oh, wow, you know, I've got this problem. I want to go talk to him because he, he's put a sign out that he's a lawyer uh, and you went to talk to him. You know, there could be a lot of the same uh, certainly expectations from you that you could rely on his advice. Uh, now, if he was actually a lawyer, then the American Bar Association model rules or the state bar model rules or state bar rules would kick in for that lawyer because we are governed by our bar organization rules. Java would not be. Uh, he would uh, he would be under a different uh, 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 rule that would be about unauthorized practice of law. So he could he could be dis- he could be certainly. Uh, uh, you know, uh, convicted of unauthorized practice of law. He could be held uh, civilly liable for unauthorized practice of law because he's not actually an attorney. But you could reasonably, reasonably rely on his advice. And if it was bad advice, you could have recourse. 
Java, don't get mad at me for bringing you into all of this. I, I don't know how I became the subject of this uh, investigation into my into my lawyer credentials. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to take a break now. Uh, if, if you're calling in, hang on. We'll get to you after the break. We're talking about the attorney-client relationship. When does it start? Our number is one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On the next Fresh Air, Jonah Hill, co-star of Superbad, Moneyball, on The Wolf of Wall Street. He wrote and directed the new film Mid-90s about a group of skateboarders in the mid-90s. That's the period when Jonah Hill was skateboarding, but he was never great. Because to be great at skateboarding, you have to be willing to slam on your face down 10 stairs on concrete over and over and over and over. Join us. Today at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We realize that not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you've missed any of our programs, you can listen to the show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, who is joining us via Skype. And this morning, we're talking about the attorney-client relationship. Uh, When does it begin? If it does begin, what does that mean? And we do have a call that we're going to go to in uh, Beaumont. Sue has called in. Thanks for being part of the show, Sue. Hi. I'd like to ask Professor Gershon a question about attorney-client privilege. I saw a show on Investigation Discovery this weekend about a serial killer who was appointed a lawyer. And uh, so this attorney found out from the serial killer that the location of two bodies of two dead girls that he had murdered, and the families were desperately searching for them. And uh, the lawyer, to verify what the killer had said, went to a mine shaft and was lowered down into it, and he did find the body of one of the girls. But he did not tell the law, and the families were desperately begging him, if you know anything, if, if he's told you anything, let us know. And the lawyer would not tell the law or the families or anything about what he had found. Don't you think that lawyer should have recused himself and told the law where those bodies were? And how far how far does an attorney-client privilege go? Well, so that's a great question. 
question and an important question. It goes really far. Our duty of confidentiality to our clients is very deep and very important. And unfortunately, I think what the lawyer did was the right thing ethically. Now, if you talk to this is what the difference between what an attorney's ethical duties are to their client and, and what generally maybe our ethical duties to society are. So if we asked a philosophy class, the same question, they said, yeah, you got it. You got to tell the law about that. But our, our duty says to us, we must keep confidentiality, our client secrets. And if they've already committed a crime, and there's there's no way to mitigate that the damage from that crime by telling that secret. We must keep it secret. Now, on the other hand, if a client comes to me, if that serial killer came to me and I was representing him and he said, now I'm going to go kill somebody else. Now I'm going to go uh, and I am going to. Here's how I plan to kill somebody else. I'm going to do the exact same way. Here's the person I'm going to kill. If I really think that that person is telling me the truth and they're going to cause harm to another person and I can prevent that. They're going to kill that other person and I can prevent that. Then I, in some states, I must tell the authorities in that case. In other states, I simply may tell the authorities. And, and, and if, if, you know, if I don't, it's because of my ethical duty of confidentiality. Now, I would tell the authorities in that case, and I would have have uh, uh, you know an ex- exception to the rule to do that. But if the crime has already happened, uh, most states would say the lawyer should still keep the client's confidence. And I know that sounds that sounds uh, bad, on, you know, philosophically and and you know from from the rest of the community. But the fact is, my duty to my client when I take on a client. My duty of confidentiality, they have to trust that I am going to keep even their worst secret secrets unless they intend to do further harm. All right. Thanks for bringing that uh, part of uh, the conversation to our show, Sue. We appreciate that. When we've talked about uh, that, when the once the client uh, relationships, the attorney-client relationship starts, then the lawyer owes duties. And you've mentioned that uh, this could be uh, from the Bar Association, or I suppose if, if an individual sued in court, what could some possibilities be from if they uh, broke these duties or didn't uphold the duties? Well, and that's a great question, Liz. I mean, it could be if I don't hold my duty of to, to handle my client's affairs competently or diligently, uh, then I could be committing malpractice, in which case I could be sued civilly and the client could get money damages from me. But also I could be disciplined by the bar organization as well. You know, Sue talked about uh, confidentiality. That's really important. If I breach my client's confidence, um, I may not. I may not be committing malpractice necessarily, although I might, but I but I could be disciplined by the bar for, for breaching that confidentiality. And she talked about, well, what about the lawyer recusing himself? Well, once once I've taken on that client's secrets, even if I'm no longer that client's lawyer, I still owe a duty of confidentiality to keep those secrets even after that person is no longer my client and even after they die. Uh, courts have held that uh, the secrets, once the client dies, you can't say, well, now they're dead. I, I'm going to tell the secret. Um, it's interesting because there were uh, public defenders in Chicago. This really gets to kind of Sue's question, who ha- were told by a client that he had actually committed certain murders that someone else was in prison for. 
And these public defenders, you know, did not tell his secret until he died. But when he died, they revealed the fact that uh, somebody else was was uh, in in jail for for a crime that he didn't commit because, you know, they had a confession from their former client who was now dead. They were actually disciplined by their bar organization, and they both felt that this was still the right thing to do. You know, they felt it was morally what they needed to do, even though they were disciplined by their bar organization. So, you know, they weren't held civilly liable, but but they certainly were uh, held uh, to have violated the bar rules. All right. And this morning we are talking about uh, the attorney-client relationship. And if you'd like to participate, add to our conversation, you can give us a call. Our number is one 672 7464. You can also email us. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. So one of the ways, uh, did a little research. I'm not an attorney, but I did a little research. So one of the ways an attorney-client uh, relationship can form is from a letter of engagement or a contract, and it's signed by, by both parties. Uh, you know, that, I guess that seems like the best case scenario. It's absolutely the the best way to do it because then you've got a clear set of instructions between the parties. And because when you know when you take on a client, I have obligations to them as a lawyer, but they also have obligations to me. And some of their obligations are, you know, I need to know what their they need to know what the fee arrangement is and when they need to pay me, and and you know what they're paying me for. They need to know what they need to bring. Uh, is part of this. There's certain information I need from them, certain documents I'm going to need from them. So their responsibility is set forth in this uh, letter of engagement. That also makes it clear that we are entering into an attorney-client relationship. And in doing so, that means that I have checked to make sure that I don't have any conflicts of interest with this now uh, person who's going to be my client. You know, that if I, you know, if I am representing uh, this person's wife in a divorce action, Against that, you know, the same person who's now in my office, I probably, I mean, I know I can't take them on, uh, you know, even for a different matter, because clearly I'm going to have a, a conflict of interest with them. So I have to I have to check to make sure there are no conflicts. So there's a lot that goes into forming properly forming that attorney client relationship. But attorney client relationships can form informally, too. So, you know, for example, if I'm out on the soccer field and watching my, my children play soccer and one of the other parents comes up to me and says and asks me a legal question, if I'm not careful, I can easily enter into an attorney-client relationship. That's right. And you might not have all, I guess you you don't want to do that because you might not have all the information. You might not uh, be aware that uh, they're relying on you. That's right. And and so you don't want that's the one thing that uh, we certainly don't want to have happen on this show is we don't want people to think that when they call and ask us questions that we can answer their specific questions, that we can enter into an attorney client relationship because because we can't. And and, and we don't we we certainly don't know all the facts. Uh, They need to sit down with an attorney and, and share the information pertinent to their case that an attorney would ask for and ask the right questions and need to see all the documents involved. Uh, and then the attorney would then send them an engagement letter. Um, the other thing, Liz, that I think is important is if a client, if an attorney is not going to take a case and not going to uh, enter into an attorney-client relationship with someone, they need to send a non-engagement letter and say, hey, I just want you met with me. I declined to take your case. 
uh, you know, you need to go find uh, another lawyer if you think you do have a case, uh, because there are, you know, statutes of limitations that may limit uh, the time you can bring an action. So it's very important. And I, you know, I talk to my students about always make sure, you know, if you're not engaging with this client to send a non-engagement letter as well, to make sure you put that in writing as well. All right. And we have a couple of f- calls on the line now. First, we're going to go to Waveland. Uh, Mike, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm in a court situation right now. And um, a friend of mine had told me that um, I was going to be taken for everything that I could be taken for. And I asked that person if he would stand up in court for me. And he said he couldn't because it was uh, in confidence. And I said, well, you already broke the confidence agreement by telling me. And I was wondering what would be the best way to um, enact something with this person, either um, a written statement and certified or subpoena him through my lawyer. Well, first of all, I think I, I, I don't know all the facts, but I would say that if this person is not a lawyer who made this statement to you, then there is no confidential relationship uh, that exists. Um, I would, if you are represented by a lawyer, I would have your attorney uh, contact them. There, there are ways to uh, subpoena someone to testify, and, and you know you can take a deposition as well. But there are ways to to, to have that information presented in court. Uh, but if they're not, if they were not entered into an attorney-client relationship with you then that information is not confidential. And by the way, it's your the information that's confidential belongs to the client. Right? I can't share that. I can't share that information without the client's permission, but the client can share it with anybody they want to. So when we talk about a confidential relationship, that is, that confidentiality completely belongs to the client. And, and you know, it, it really just prevents the lawyer from sharing that information. I think Mike was talking about uh, the the friend who talked to him broke the confidence he had with someone else to tell to tell Mike, uh, but uh, and Mike wants to make sure friend shows up in court or the the information that friend knows shows up uh, in court. Well, that's yeah, I mean, a lawyer can uh, compel a witness to appear in court and and provide information. And so that would be the proper channel. And if, one thing I should say is if somebody's represented by an attorney already uh, and, and if, I, if you're represented by an attorney and I know you're represented by an attorney, I, as an attorney, if I, you know, if I were an attorney in Mississippi, could not talk to you about your case uh, if I know you're represented. And that's one of the ethical rules that we follow as well. And the, and the reason we have that is because let's say I, I know that somebody's represented by an attorney on the other side. And I call up and I and I call their the, the, the client directly and say, hey, your attorney's making this hard. I got a settlement offer I think you'll take. Well, that's not fair. You know, I need to go through that other attorney uh, to make sure that I make that settlement offer because they're going to represent the best interest of that client. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated matter. It really is a complicated system. But certainly if you've got an attorney, they'll know what to do and they'll know how to get a witness to to court. Thanks, Mike, for calling in. Uh, that brings up a question. We've talked. We just mentioned that Professor Richard Gershon is a lawyer, and he teaches at the law school. 
He's a member of the bar in Florida and Georgia, but not a member of the bar in Mississippi. So what is the difference between an attorney and a lawyer? Well, I think, you know, you get different answers from different people. I mean, I I really think uh, a, a lot of times people say, you just need to make sure you, you're clear where you're licensed to practice. Uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, we talk about the, the attorney-client relationship, the lawyer-client relationship. They're used interchangeably. Uh, you know, I would say that someone who uh, is not a member of any bar certainly should not call themselves a lawyer or an attorney. A person who's a member of a bar can say, Yes, I'm a lawyer or I'm an attorney, but I'm licensed to practice in these jurisdictions. So it's really important that we, we're clear because I mentioned that Java could be uh, held for practicing law without a license, unauthorized practice of law. If I practice law in a jurisdiction where I'm not licensed, then I'm committing unauthorized practice of law. So, you know, it's really uh, important that we're careful about that. And jurisdictions are very uh, specific. Now, I could, for example, somebody in, in Mississippi desperately wanted to hire me to be, in, be their attorney. Uh, I could ask the court to admit me for that one action. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, that, that courts can do that. Uh, federal courts can do it as well. So... Uh, you know, but then I would be uh, okay to practice at that point. But unless I'm a member of the bar, uh, I should not practice in that jurisdiction. All right. We've got some really interesting, thought-provoking discussions going on today on what a lawyer is and what the attorney-client relationship is. We're going to take our next break. When we come back, we'll uh, answer some more phone calls, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, when when is your attorney your attorney? When does that relationship begin? Our number is one 877 mpb ring that's 1-877-672-7464 and i've got my email up so if you want to if you can't talk on the phone send us an email our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org you're listening to in legal terms on mpb think radio This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert. He's joining us via Skype from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill, and Java Chapman is not a lawyer, but he's a great DJ. <laughs> this morning, we're talking about the attorney-client relationship and how does that begin, when does that begin, and how can you rely on it? We do have a couple of calls we're going to get to. Thank you, James from Water Valley, for hanging on. James, uh, go ahead with your question. Well, my question is, if a lawyer sends a letter to a person uh, threatening legal action, is that lawyer required to reveal who his client is if he's asked? Well, that's a great question, and uh, it depends. It depends on what you know what the 
matter is. I mean, it could be that the usually usually the identity of the client is not considered something that is uh, has to be kept confidential, especially if the thing if the, if the cause does go to a lawsuit, then that's clearly going to become public information. But there might be there might be a reason. So it really just depends on on the circumstance. I mean, obviously, I think it's better uh, if the client if the lawyer reveals who the client is and why uh, there's a threat for legal action. Uh, I would also, you know, sometimes there's scams out there too. So you know, if you get a letter like that, don't you know, don't assume that you have to respond to it. Uh, unless you talk to uh, you know your own lawyer to make sure that it's something legitimate, or you know if it's if it's just out of the blue and you haven't inv- been involved in anything that would cause you to be sued, sometimes people are just trying to uh, scam you for money. So you want to make sure that it's legitimate. I would check to make sure it's a, it's a real law firm that sent you that letter as well. All right. Uh, thank you. Thanks for being part of our show today, James. Uh, We have another call to go to. And if you would like to participate, uh, go ahead and give us a call at 1-877-672-7464. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Today we're talking about the attorney-client relationship. So from Jackson, Andrew, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And um, I was calling. Um, I just finished watching Making a Murderer Part Two, and um, one of the issues uh, in the show was about uh, the attorney for um, the younger uh, gentleman who was accused of a murder um, about his duty of loyalty to his client, which came into question. And I was just wondering if there's an ethical rule or what the standard is for when. Um, there's an apparent um, conflict between what the attorney thinks is the, the prudent way to go in someone's case and the client um, doesn't necessarily agree. Um, thank you. Great questions. Great question. Well, and let me start by talking about the conflict of interest that occurs uh, in situations, especially in criminal situations. If, if a criminal defense lawyer takes on two clients who are accused of the same crime in the same situation, let's say two people are accused of of robbing a convenience store together, you know, uh, it could be that one of the the clients all of a sudden decides they're going to flip and, and, you know, uh, provide information to the prosecutor. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a conflict of interest because you've gotten secrets from both these clients about the same incident. And now you've got one client on one side and one client on the other, and the, and the lawyer pretty much has to withdraw at that point. It's a, it's a problematic. So uh, the best situation for defense lawyers typically is to just defend one of the, the clients and not, not have that situation. Now, in terms of, um, in terms of the, the communication or the, 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 what the lawyer is responsible for and what the client's responsible for, it's a great question because – if a, if a client comes to me and they say, I want to take this to trial, you know, if I'm if I'm the lawyer, I have to abide by that. Now, I can advise them. I need to counsel them that that may not be the best in their best interest. But ultimately, the decision whether they want to go to trial or settle, whether they want to take a plea bargain or not, is really up to the client and not up to the lawyer. Now, strategy, trial strategy, uh, who I call as a witness, uh, you know, how I approach the, the case once they decide once I decide to take it. That's up to the lawyer. That's where the lawyer has the expertise.
expertise. So the, the decisions have to be made. The ultimate decisions of what the outcome they want has to be come from the client. So I can't just settle a case for my client without making sure they're, that's what they want. Uh, and, and so that's where we come into a conflict. So, you know, that division of responsibility is, is pretty clear in the ethical rules. Uh, so where it comes becomes difficult is if in a defense, a, a criminal defense situation, the client has a constitutional right to testify on their own behalf. And it could be that that's the worst thing they could do. And the lawyer doesn't want to put them on the stand because the lawyer is worried that, and, and probably pretty sure that they're going to lie on the stand, which puts the lawyer in, in a really bad position because we cannot be part of having our, our clients. We cannot participate in our clients lying on, on the stand. So, you know, that, that's where, you know, you get into some conflicts between the lawyer and, and the client. Uh, and the lawyer may have to withdraw in a circumstance where the where the client's uh, committing perjury. But, uh, you know, it really is important that the lawyer lawyer understand what their role is. and The client understands what their role is. Thanks, Andrew, for giving us the opportunity to talk about that. And I just love that that's what in legal terms is for. As our disclaimer says, we are not here to give legal advice. But uh, Professor Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law can tell you what the law is and can uh, uh, answer specific questions on if if you have about what the law is and and that's why we have that disclaimer right at the beginning of the show absolutely and you know the for example the aba model rule to andrew's question is talks about the allocation of authority between client and lawyer uh and it really does say that the lawyer's got to communicate about all decisions made about trial strategy and why they're doing what they're doing but that's the lawyer's decision, whereas the client's decision is how do they want to proceed, uh, whether go to trial or take a settlement or whatever the case may be. All right. We're going to go ahead and take our last break of the show, and then we'll get into uh, a little bit more about uh, you're standing on the soccer field and you ask uh, Professor Gershon for advice. Although, uh, were, you, were you on the soccer field? Where, where were you? Were you in the, the theater at the uh, debate? Where were you, Professor Gershon? Well, I was on the soccer field, I guess. It doesn't really matter. Maybe, I was getting, <laughs> maybe I'm getting a pie in my face. Oh, uh, that's right. All right. Well, you can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. I always stood on the side of the swimming pool. Uh, Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We appreciate you listening to our show. If you've missed any of our program, don't forget our website, mpbonline.org, 
slash in legal terms. That's one way you can listen to us. The second way is the MPB media app, which is just a handy dandy thing. And you can also go to a podcasts. I helped a good friend of mine. Uh, Java helped me help her. I learned about the iPhones and the podcast app and browsing. You browse for a topic and you search for the name of a show. And that way, if you look for in legal terms, uh, browse through legal the uh, legal category, or if you search for in legal terms, you can find us on the podcast. And that Apple podcast app was really easy. <laughs> With Android, you have to kind of search around and find um, a, a good podcast app to use. But uh, anyway, that's how you can listen to our show. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon, who's joining us via Skype from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We already talked about one way an attorney-client relationship can form is if there's a formal letter of engagement or a contract for legal services signed by both. A second way is, I guess, if money changes hands, if a client pays a retainer or makes a payment to an attorney in exchange for legal services. Is there any ambiguity about that, Professor Gershon? As long as it is an exchange for legal services and not something else, no, there's really no ambiguity. But again, I think that is also a time when a lawyer should then uh, put a written agreement together and have the client sign and have the lawyer sign. That's always the best practice. So there is, you know, because to me, anytime there's no written agreement, there's always ambiguity because the lawyer could say, well, I, I thought, you know, you were giving me money for the theater tickets I sold you, you know, or whatever. Uh, we don't know what that money was changed hands for. But if there's a, a signed agreement by the parties, then we know that 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 retainer is being held to pay for those legal services. So really, really important to have a, write, a written agreement. And, you know, it's also important, as I said, to have an agreement that you're not taking a case. And I, I sent you a a case called uh, Togstead that is the scariest one to me, which is uh, that a client, a potential client, walked into a law firm, uh, met with a lawyer, and she had her husband had had a problem in the hospital, and she thought maybe he had a malpractice suit. And the lawyer she spoke to said, well, I don't really think you have a case, but I'll, I'll talk to my partner and, I, and we'll get back to you. And they never did. They never got back to her. Uh, They never sent her a letter of engagement, but she relied on the fact that they were going to get back to her. Uh, It turned out her husband did have a good case, but by the time she talked to another lawyer about it, uh, it was too late for her to file because the statute of limitations had run. And so that firm ended up having to pay a malpractice, lawyer malpractice uh, damage award equal to what the malpractice award would have been uh, in, in the medical malpractice case. And that's simply all the lawyer had to do was send a letter saying, we, we're not taking your case. Uh, please, you know, contact another lawyer uh, for another opinion. Uh, time is a factor. So make sure you, you take care of that. But so that's a scary thing for lawyers. We got to make sure we let people know we're not their lawyers as much as we need to let them know we are their lawyers. So if you see Professor Gershon at the theater or uh, on the soccer fields, uh, be careful. He, he has to be careful about 
uh, answering your questions. It's not that he's unfriendly. It's just that uh, he has a duty to clients, and if you're not a client, he needs to make that perfectly clear. Is that right? That's right. And I think it's really important for, I think we need to all be respectful for each other. And if you, if you see a doctor or a lawyer or any profession on, on, you know, at the soccer field or the theater, that's really not the best place to ask them because, you know, all, all doctors have to, is their time and all lawyers have, we, you know, we, we sell our time. I I had a a pizza delivery person came one time and he found out I was uh, a law professor and he said, you lawyers, you charge for everything. When I call, my lawyer charges me for a phone call. You know, why does each have to do that? And I said, well, are you going to give me that pizza for free? And he said, no, of course not. And I said, well, you know, that's, that is our, that's how we, make our living is by, by our time. And if you, if you go up to a lawyer, even if they're your friend and, and ask them for free advice, you know, that's, that's a little bit disrespectful. Now, if that lawyer is willing to give you that free advice and enter into an attorney client privilege relationship, that's great. But the best, the best I think approach would be for the lawyer to say, um, you know, I'd love to answer your question, but why don't you schedule time with me in my office? And that's the best answer. All right. We have uh, time for just one more phone call if someone wants to call in. Our number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're talking about the legal relationship between a client and an attorney. Um, so, what are what duties does a lawyer owe to their client? Well, primarily first to start off with the duty of competence. And that goes back to part of competence is being licensed to practice in the jurisdiction that you're in. I mean, so that's competence, but also, uh, you know, competence can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that I'm, I'm prepared to, to deal with their type of matter. If somebody came to me and wanted me to represent them in a capital murder case, I am not competent to do that. And I need to know that I have a duty of diligence. And, you know, really, one of the things that lawyers get in trouble with the most is, failing to be diligent and completing the work that they're asked to do and failing to communicate with their clients. I, I think those are the two that uh, lawyers are most complained about by their clients. And, and it's really important that we keep our clients and communicate with them. It doesn't mean we answer every text they send us at midnight, but it does mean that we actually, in a reasonable manner, get back to them and talk to them about their case because they want to know. Uh, you know, duty of confidentiality. We talked about duty to avoid conflicts of interest. Uh, duty to be clear in my fee arrangement with them. Uh, those are all important duties. Talk also a little bit about loyalty. Uh, how does how how does that manifest itself? Well, and that really is the the duty to avoid conflicts of interest, because when I take on a a client's case, I am saying to them that I don't have any any matters uh, that are in direct conflict with with their matter, first of all. So obviously I can't represent both parties in a divorce. That would be a clear conflict of interest. But also I can't have any personal conflicts. I can't have any uh, any of my own uh, personal interests that would conflict with my clients. So, you know, for example, if I had a side business that was uh, in direct competition with my client's business and I used their confidential information to help my own 
side business, that would be a conflict of interest. I shouldn't handle that matter. If I represent, uh, if, a, if someone comes to me and they, they're, they're a tenant that wants to sue their landlord and I happen to represent that landlord uh, in, in other matters, that could be a, a problem with duty of loyalty. And, and part of it could be how can I be loyal to this new client if I actually represent that landlord uh, in several other cases. So we have to be sure that we can handle this matter and not be pulled you know, by our do- duty to other clients or to ourselves. All right. And uh, just to bring in one current event, I, I think this just goes to the the facts. And I, I wouldn't I would hope people who read this wouldn't think of this as a, as a bad thing or, or it's certainly not a good thing either. The today they announced that there was a class action lawsuit that was settled against Google and they had millions of dollars uh, was awarded, but because there were so many lawyers and because there were so many plaintiffs, each uh, person only will receive about four cents. And I, I guess that is, you know, someone, if you're going to have a class action lawsuit, someone has to handle it. Someone has to do a lot of work and to be uh, that much of a, uh, go against that big of a company for that many individuals, I assume, requires an awful lot of effort. But it 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 seems a sad thing that each of the individuals only will receive about four cents. Right, it does, and you know, and and, and it it costs lawyers a lot of money, and a lot of times they'll take these these cases on contingent fee basis, which means if they don't win, they don't get paid anything. Uh, there's a lot of risk there, a lot of personal expense on behalf on the lawyer's side. The way, really what a class action honestly is about a lot of times is that no individual plaintiff could ever have the resources to go against a Google. And so this is a way for, uh, to, in essence, make sure Google pays the damages that it owes and it may not get to any individual plaintiff in that great amount, but but you know from a point of view of Google, they had to pay a lot of money, and that behavior would have never been dealt with uh, if just one person had sued Google. So it's it's a way to make to hold big companies accountable, and that really is the importance of class action suits. And I I do think it you know it is interesting. It, it started in two thousand and three. So imagine uh, if our listener was working and had worked for five years, and because of a ruling, uh, they you know they didn't get paid five years worth of work. Uh, you know you didn't get paid for that. So I guess you you have to take the the long view, especially for uh, attorneys and their fees. Right. And think about all the work that they couldn't take because they were handling that case as well. So, you know, a lot of times those people who handle those big cases are pretty well all in. And it would be a conflict of interest for them to take maybe another person's case when they really didn't have time to, to deal with it. Well, I think this was another excellent show where people learned something. They learned uh, about the law, and they learned about uh, uh, Java not being a lawyer, but he is a really good DJ. 
So this is going to wrap us up for, for today on In Legal Terms. Our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo, and Java Chapman was our board engineer in Jackson. So for Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. We hope that you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.